Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm the associate pastor here, and I want to wish you a happy and safe 4th of July, 4th of July weekend. Um, I know it can be chaotic. I hope that you didn't have a hard time finding a seat here tonight. Um, I don't think you did, but but that's all right. Um, something that Malachi mentioned earlier that I want to continue to to emphasize, especially today, I don't know where you land on the issues that we see on the news and on Facebook and everywhere else, but one thing that I think if you're here tonight, we can all celebrate this weekend and really every day is that in this country, we can worship God freely, regularly um, with one another without violence, persecution, and opposition that so many of our brothers and sisters around the world face regularly. It certainly is a privilege. So tonight before we go to our barbecues, before we go somewhere to watch fireworks, we're going to be continuing in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we've been studying for some time. Last week, Jared started describing or started unpacking Paul in this section of the letter. He's explaining the new life, right? You, you were this way, but now because of who you are in Christ, you're to be this way. This is the new life. Put off the old way and put on the new and, and the idea is this, is that, that all believers, all who are in Christ Jesus, in this body, have a new identity. And they're called to live out this new identity, and it should be distinctly different from the world and distinctly different from their former selves. So again, last week, Jared in Ephesians 4, he covered verses 17 through 24, and he explained um, what Paul is writing here, and he's, Paul is telling the Ephesians who they are in Christ. We need to know who we are in Christ because in verses 25 through 32, which we're going to be reading tonight and studying together, Paul, is, it's more practical. He's explaining or illustrating how believers are to live with one another, how we, how we are to live in community. That's important, right? How are we, these imperfect people, supposed to serve a perfect God and live together in harmony and in community. It should be simple. It should be easy. But like you know, if you read your Bible, it wasn't always that way. And if you've been in church for a little while, you know for sure that it's definitely not that way. All right, but this new, this new lifestyle, this new identity involves replacing um, old behaviors and attitudes with these new behaviors and attitudes which Paul is going to list. And all born-again believers should carefully pursue these behaviors. They should mark uh, believers. If you have been born again, if you are in Christ, these behaviors should, should mark you, should typify you. Now, these are not all-inclusive, so I want to warn you just at the top. These are not the only believer, or behaviors and attitudes that uh, believers should put on, but they're the ones here that we're going to be reading together. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and join me in Ephesians 4. We're going to be reading 25 through 32, and when you have it, say amen. That was quick. All right, starting in verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, 
that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, or let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather. We certainly consider it a privilege and a, and a blessing that we have in this nation. Let us never take it for granted. As we open your word and we read your truth, let us, uh, we just yield this time to you. We ask that, that your word would instruct us in the path that we should go, that your Holy Spirit would shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. Father, that we might exist in community with one another while we are here on this earth in a way that's harmonious and pleasing to you. Father, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before we get started, let's, let's look at three observations. So if you have your Bible, we're going to make three observations on these verses. The first, notice that each of these are relational. I said it at the top. But our new union with Christ should affect how we live in relationships with one another. It should change how we operate in community. Now notice here that sin, it negatively affects others, but righteous behaviors and attitudes positively bless others. All right, that's the first observation. The second, notice in each of these, Paul gives us a negative action and then he gives us a positive action. And, and here's the takeaway. Here's what we need to notice. That holiness is about more than saying no to sin. Holiness is more than just saying no to sin. It's also about saying yes to God. All right, not just no to sin, but also saying yes to God. And the third, and this one's a little bit longer, but notice in each of these that there's a theological reason given for why we should throw off these sinful behaviors and put on these Christian actions. Look with me at verse 25. Paul says to put away lying, and he relates it to a doctrine of the church by saying, because we are members one of another. And then in verse 26, he says to be angry and do not sin, and he relates it to a belief or our understanding from the scripture of the devil. And then in verse 28, he commands the church to no longer steal and follows it by speaking of honest work, stewardship, and care for the poor. Then in verses 29 and 30, when he's talking about harmful speech, he relates it to grieving the Holy Spirit. And then in 31 and 32, when he's talking about forgiveness, Paul points to the cross and God's amazing forgiveness in Christ. So from these observations, what we need to understand is that our orthopraxy, which means right practice, and our orthodoxy, which means right belief, are joined. They're combined. Right, they kind of dovetail, but they connect at a point. So, so what are you what are you saying, Marcus? Right belief leads to right practice, or as the saying goes, if you know better, you should do better. Right? It's simple. We get that. We get that. So let's let's look at what Paul's explaining here. Let's start unpacking this together. But before we do, how many people are like me? We live in the information age, and you like to use Google for a lot of things. You search it, even if you know how to do it right, like we're going to go shoot some fireworks or have a barbecue or something like that, and you look up how to make a hamburger. And there are a million how-to articles, step one, step two, step three. And if you're like me, 
you know, you're just curious, you're just looking it up, but you don't want to read a four-page article about how to make a hamburger. You just want to read the highlights. You know, step one, buy good meat, 80-20, right? Then you got you to, gotta, um, let's say, add some seasoning, maybe put, chop some onions, put them in there, stuff like that, right? You just want to read the highlights. So I think here that we see uh, very clearly, Paul gives us five how-tos for living out our new identity for the glory of God and the benefit of others. So that's, that's where we're going tonight. We're going to be looking at these five for, uh, through these verses in Ephesians. So the first, if you're taking notes, is to replace lying with telling the truth. Replace lying with telling the truth. In verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And in this first exhortation, Paul cites uh, Zechariah 8.16. Zechariah 8.16 says this. It'll be on the screen. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth one, or to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. So again, in addition to citing the Old Testament, Paul provides what? The theological reason. Because orthodoxy and orthopraxy are dovetailed. What we do it stems from or is always connected to what we understand, what we believe, right? And in this one, Paul is connecting it uh, to the doctrine of the church or the truth that we believe. We're to replace lying with telling the truth because we are members of Christ's body. This is the church. This, this body reference or body metaphor is only used by Paul, only used by Paul. So it should be important to us, and every time we see it in his letters, we need to understand that he's more than likely talking about the church. There are a few times where he's not. But in Ephesians 3.6, we see Paul write, This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Did you catch that there? Members of the same body. We are all in Jesus' body, in this body, and he is the head. If you're in Christ, you're in the body. All right, and since believers are all united in this body, lies hurt the body. Here's another simple um, and really kind of a, you'll, you'll get it when you hear it. So Ariel, she's amazing. She's my wife. She's sitting up here in the front. She made me some coffee this morning. And, you know, it's in this cup, and we're driving to Chestnut Mountain for the morning, and, uh, and I just drink it, like, straight away, like it was iced tea or something. And you know what happened? My eyes said to my, to my brain that, hey, it, the coffee's not hot, so go ahead and drink it. And you know what happened? I burned my tongue. So when my eye lies to my brain, my brain lies to my body, and my mouth drinks the coffee, and it's way hotter than I expected, my tongue gets burned, and you know what I can't do? Taste the gum that I'm chewing or the food that I ate for lunch or the food that I'm going to eat tonight. It's going to be a great 4th of July. But it's a, it's a simple reference, right? But... But that's exactly what happened. Your words matter. They hurt the body. So when you lie, when you, when you um, are deceitful or manipulative, what happens? It hurts the body the same way that the hot coffee hurt my tongue, burned it. The same thing. And truth has been a pretty common theme for Paul in this chapter. In verse 15, Paul writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. In verse 21, he says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Then in verse 24, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Truth was important to Paul, and it should be important to believers because God hates lying. Truth was important to Paul, and it should be important to believers because God hates lying. Look with me at just one example. I was tempted to put every single one in the Bible that I found, but, you know, we're not going to do that. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So God's people are to be truth tellers. And when, when you tell the truth, you are imitating God. When you tell the truth, you are imitating God. We also learn from Scripture that Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. Look with me at John 8, 44. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So when you tell the truth, you're imitating God and when you lie, you're imitating Satan. And lies stifle unity. Truth, however, strengthens unity and reflects the character of our God. So that's the first one. We're to put away falsehood, lying, and put on telling the truth. So that's the first how-to. Be truth-tellers. The second, replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Here's another hint or another nudge at the, old, at the Old Testament. In Psalm 4.4, David writes, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Scripture permits, believe it or not, a, a certain type of anger. This is called righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. And it's a holy anger against sin. Psalm 119.53, David writes, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Jesus expressed this righteous indignation in Mark 1 when he turned over the tables in the temple. And then again in response to the religious leaders' questions about healing on the Sabbath. And then in Mark 3, 5, Mark writes that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So Jesus displayed this kind of um, this righteous indignation, this righteous anger combined with grief. That being said, sin should also grieve God's people. And Christians, believers, we need to feel this anger, this holy anger against sin and wickedness, because when we're indifferent to it, we encourage it to spread. All my life, I've been fascinated uh, with World War II. Not so much in the horror, or horror and, um, you know, all the death and chaos and everything else, but just how, like, how did it get that far? How did it get that far that so many people were killed and so many people were killing and we sent so many people here and there and there's like all these second and third order effects that we're still feeling today because people were indifferent to it. Well, it's not on my yard, so ah, whatever. We can't be indifferent to it because we encourage it to spread. Righteous indignation is fine. It's permissible in scripture. Now, I want to warn you, Paul gives us Three reminders to make sure that we keep our sin holy. The first comes from verse 26. He says, and do not sin. Paul's not giving us permission to throw fit, to seek revenge, to uh, dishonor the name of God in public or in private. 
The second comes from verse 26 as well. He, said, he writes, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul's saying, he's saying to seek forgiveness or reconciliation quickly. Make up quickly. And really, because whether sinful anger or righteous anger, if it's left, left ignored or unresolved, it can lead to problems like bitterness. And then the, the last is from verse 27. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Or as the saying goes, do not go to bed with unresolved conflicts or you'll sleep with the devil. Who's heard that before? Just show of hands. No one? Yeah, we got one. All right, two maybe. So like lying, even righteous anger ignored and unresolved can stifle unity. All right, the third. Replace, replace stealing with working and giving. In verse 28, Paul writes, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First and foremost, stealing, it violates the eighth commandment, right? Exodus twenty fifteen: you shall not steal. Historians, they tell us, though, that stealing was pretty common in first century Asia Minor. And Paul possibly had in mind uh, some of the skilled day laborers that existed. Uh, we have people like that today tradesmen who their work is seasonal and when they're out of this seasonal work and without any help or without any resources or anything else they have to resort to stealing and while this this sin while this way of life may have had place in their old life paul is telling them to put that off because their new identity that's not permissible it's not acceptable it's not consistent with who they are in christ jesus rather paul is telling them to do honest work with their hands. And scripture tells us right here that humans are created for work. Right, so let's do some Bible trivia. I know Todd and Amy, they will crush it. All right, so the first question, I have three. What was Adam's job in the Garden of Eden? If you answered gardener, you're correct. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam was a gardener. All right, the second question. What was Jesus' job before he, gave, or before he began his ministry? Carpenter. Carpenter. All right, Mark 6, 3. Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, there's some evidence that that word for carpenter is more broadly used. Uh, in the Greek, it's tekton, meaning like stonemason or handyman or artisan or contractor or something like that. But carpenter, clear as day, all intents and purposes, carpenter. So if you answered carpenter, you're correct. All right, the last question, the third one. What was Paul's job during his ministry? Tent maker. I knew you guys would crush it. Acts 18.3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. Priscilla and Aquila, he's staying with them. Paul was a tent maker. But let's refocus, all right? Paul is instructing the believers in Ephesus and, and us today to be good stewards. He writes, so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. And John Piper, he gives us three options regarding work. The first is you can steal to get. The second is you can work to get for yourself. Or the third, you can work to get in order to give. You can work to get in order to give. Now, Paul is obviously commending the third option there. Or as John Wesley said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, then give as much as you can. 
So like lying, sinful anger, stealing, and selfishness stifle unity. So the fourth, the fourth new habit or behavior that we are to put on is to replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. In verses 29 and 30, Paul writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. In the original Greek, that word for corrupting, it means rotten or, or putrefied. Right? We see it in Matthew 7 and Matthew 13. It refers to rotten fruit and then rotten, uh, rotten fish. But both are accurate pictures of what corrupt speech or this kind of sinful speech that Paul is um, clearly commanding against. It's a perfect picture of it. Right? Corrupt talk does not nourish, it sickens. And the problem is it's because it comes from a corrupt heart. In Luke 6.45, Jesus says the good person, out of the good, out of his, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is corrupt talk? I'm waiting because somebody's waiting for me to be like, it's just cursing. Just don't curse. Now, definitely don't curse. I'm not saying, hey, go ahead and curse. It's definitely, it definitely includes cursing, but some other examples include and are not limited to, just like your favorite uh, pharmaceutical commercial. Vicious or unkind words, gossip, slander, we find those in verse 31. And then in uh, chapter 5, verse 4, lying, abusive language, vulgar references are all corrupt talk. So it's more than just cursing. It's more than just saying, saying or not saying these words, right? It's, it's a whole, um, really, it's, it's a lot more than that. But Jesus says on the final day that, that people will give an account for every careless word spoken. In Matthew 12, 36 and 37, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What did you say today? That's hard stuff right there. It's hard stuff. But our words matter. Our words matter. So God's people are to speak constructive words that are helpful and build up others. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The Christian life, it involves uh, healthily encouraging others. Healthily encouraging others. Paul says in these verses, uh, so as fits the occasion, right? My kids, when they were younger, they're seven and ten, but when they were younger and in daycare and stuff like that, has anybody heard of a happy plate? It's when you eat all your food. You know, you're at daycare or something like that, they, they eat it all, they, it's called a happy plate. And it was a way to encourage them to eat all their food. So they would come home regularly, and they'd be like, Daddy, I made a happy plate. And they'd show me their plate, and it'd be empty. And I'd be like, yeah, man, that's awesome. Great job. You made a happy plate, right? Encouraging them, building them up. Now, if they were 20, it's not healthy for me to be like, yeah, great job, buddy. You, you made a happy plate. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. Really, what, what the issue could be there, some codependency that needs to be addressed. Some codependency where, where God's voice is small and man's is big. Right? I, I don't want them 
to, to, to make a happy plate because it makes me happy and, I, and they get to get a pat on the back. I want them to eat all their food because it's the best thing for them. Just like the Christian life, as we mature in Christ, serving the Lord, we don't need a pat on the back every time that we do it. We don't need a high five and, hey, I really appreciate you doing that. However, we need to encourage one another. But as you mature in Christ, you should desire to just be faithful to God, to serve faithfully in the thanks that will come in heaven. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So Paul pairs unhealthy word choice with grieving the Holy Spirit. So that word grieve, right, it means to make sorrowful, to affect with sadness, to cause grief, to throw into sorrow, and to offend. And this is a reminder here, and it's pretty, uh, pretty. Uh, I want to say crafty, but it's not crafty. Paul's pretty straightforward with it, but he's reminding us that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's reminding us that, that the Holy Spirit isn't just this mystic force. Like he, It's the Holy Spirit of God. And, and our actions, and specifically here, our words can grieve the Holy Spirit. So, so what grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, since he is the Holy Spirit, he's always grieved by unholiness. Right? The, the Holy Spirit, emphasis on holy, is grieved by unholiness. And since he is the one and, Holy, one and only Holy Spirit, like we saw in uh, chapter 218 and uh, verse 4 in this chapter, disunity also causes him grief. One body joined together by the Spirit, so disunity causes him grief. Anything incompatible with the purity or unity of the church is incompatible with the nature of who the Holy Spirit is, and therefore it grieves him. And he's also the spirit of truth, which is why he's grieved by our misuse of speech, which Paul is clearly highlighting here. He hates sin, discord, falsehood, and he turns away from them. So what should God's people do if our desire is to not grieve him, to give him joy, cause him joy and happiness? We should turn away from them too. In verse 30, Paul says, that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And this is a, a nod to what he wrote earlier in the letter. But the Holy Spirit himself, living in every born-again believer, is the seal which God has stamped us as his own. If you are a believer, if you are born again, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. He is the down payment, the guarantee that God will come through on his promise. He is the guarantee that you belong to God, the stamp, the seal for the day of redemption. And Paul's already explained that the sealing, this sealing of the Holy Spirit has already taken place at the moment one hears the gospel and believes. In Ephesians 1.13, look with me. In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so this this day of redemption, it looks forward toward, uh, to, the, to the end of the salvation process, right? So when you heard and you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were sealed, you were redeemed, you were forgiven for your sins past, present, and future. But this day of redemption looks forward to the end when all heaven and earth and God's people will be redeemed in his presence for eternity. So, so Paul is really he, so 
it's so amazing just reading it and studying it because that um, the back and forth, it just, it blows me away. So in between those two points where you heard and you believed and you were sealed in the day of redemption, what are God's people supposed to do? They're supposed to grow in Christ's likeness. They're supposed to strive for unity in the spirit. So here's a, a helpful question that we need to begin to ask ourselves. Will what I'm about to say or do grieve the Holy Spirit? Or maybe that's too wordy. What would Jesus do? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I know that it's simple. I get it. I know that it's simple. But it's, it's how we learn to, to walk by the Spirit and to yield to Him in our conversations and our actions. Just the, It's a simple question, but it's how we learn. It's how we learn. So one of the ways that believers d- develop this, being able to walk by the Spirit and be led by Him and yield to Him in our conversations and our actions is by implementing what Paul writes next. And this is the fifth one. Replace bitterness, anger, and rage with kindness and forgiveness. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul says to replace sinful attitudes and behaviors like resentful attitudes, which is bitterness, festering anger, angry outbursts, which is wrath, public shouting, abusive language, which is slander, and hostility, which is malice, with kindness and forgiveness. Because when we do... We imitate because when we do, we imitate Christ. We imitate God, right? We, we imitate the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because after all, it's God's kindness that is meant to lead people to repentance. Look with me, Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So when I, when I was studying this, you know, it, it really brings you to like a, what not, not only what am I saying, but what am I doing? How am I reacting or am I responding, right? What if, what if God's people were just so kind and forgiving that the world wanted what, what we had? We'll, we'll get there in a second. This is so good. Jesus, he taught his disciples a lot about forgiveness. And I want you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 35. This should be a very familiar parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. But I want you to read it with me. Starting in verse 21, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Just a quick pause right there. Jews thought, uh, you see it in the book of Joel, that God forgave other nations as many as three times. So seven, even for Peter to say seven was like outrageous. That was like above and beyond. Right? But then Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is like way above and beyond. Peter was like, yeah, I'll set the bar higher than you. 
And Jesus is like, yeah, right, try again. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Remember that number, 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Another pause. He had every right, according to the Mosaic law, to do this. He had every right to do this. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me, or pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. This sounds familiar. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Again, within the law. This, is, this was legal. He was allowed to do this. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I told you to remember that one number. What was that one number? 10,000 talents. Okay, today, one talent would be worth $348,000. Three, four, eight, zero, zero, zero dollars. Or... 20 years of daily wages for a six-day work week. This servant owed 10,000 talents. <laughs> Today, that would be around $3.48 billion. Or 200,000, years of labor. Or 60 million working days to pay off that debt. Do like, we don't need a calculator or like a what-if app or whatever. Like, this servant could never pay off this debt. He could never in, in his lifetime pay off, work off, earn off this debt. It was his forever. He needed to be forgiven. But look at what Paul is doing here in verse 32 at the end of it. As God in Christ forgave you. Paul is pointing us back to the cross. He's pointing us back to the cross. And he reminds us that just like the servant, every person, everyone in this room, every person, anywhere at any time, owes God this infinite debt because of our sin that we could never pay. We need to be forgiven. Because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Emphasis, all. Then Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, the eternal, sinless Son of God, died on a cross paying your sin debt and my sin debt in full. In full. You know, the one that, that we would strive to, to do uh, you know, by, by works and by obedience and by sacrifice, he paid all of that. 
because we could never pay it off in this lifetime or any lifetime. It is an infinite, eternal debt that Jesus paid in his death and resurrection. And how do we know that God accepted this payment? Because on the third day, Jesus rose. So has your sin debt been forgiven? The answer to that question, it's going to depend on the answer to this next one. Do you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin and the free gift of eternal life? And, and when I say believe, I'm, it's more than head knowledge. It's head and hand, right? It's, it's what you know or your orthodoxy, which leads to your orthopraxy, what you practice, what you do, because they're tied together. So if I say that I have right belief in my head, right knowledge, but then my praxy is anything but right, then maybe I don't really understand. Just like the unforgiving servant who clearly didn't understand forgiveness, really didn't believe in the forgiveness that he just received, which is why he went and, you know, choked out the other guy and threw him in jail. Because if, if not, you're going to spend the rest of this life trying to be a good person and work off a sin debt that you could never pay. So from the Council of Scripture, it, the implication is clear for the believer. Kindness and forgiveness should mark us. We should be so kind and forgiving that people want what we have, just out of having received an infinite forgiveness, an infinite kindness, an infinite mercy in Christ Jesus. I mean, how much, how much do we resemble the wicked servant? When we're like, Lord, please forgive me for that thing. And then you turn around and you're like, giving it to him. Because, like, this is... 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is how accessible forgiveness is for the believer. This is how accessible God's kindness and forgiveness is for the believer who is in Christ Jesus. So, so why do we turn around and, and chase down the people that have you know, hurt us or owe us a debt and we're like, ah, give me, you know, pay me back, man. Try to get even. Why do we do it? So, to live out our new identity in Christ for the glory of God and for the good of others, we're going to have to replace lying with telling the truth. We're going to have to replace sinful anger with righteous anger. We're going to have to replace stealing with working and giving. Replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. And replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. So, as you go to your barbecues, I know that, that there's going to be one of those moments, you know, one of those like, one of those moments, but when you know better, you should do better. And now you know. So, 
I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship, sing God's praises. But that's the the question that I, I want you to answer before you leave here. Has your sin debt been forgiven? Because it's going to be impossible for you to forgive others if you haven't received God's kindness and forgiveness that he displays in Christ Jesus. It's going to be impossible for you to do it. So if you haven't, I want to ask you to receive that. I want to invite you to receive that tonight, to believe for the first time that the sinless Son of God died on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin and that he rose on the third day. And now he's at the right hand of God, and one day we'll see him face to face. One day he's going to come and redeem heaven and earth, come and redeem his people. All right. Father, thank you uh, for the freedom that we have in this country, and thank you for the kindness and forgiveness that you display to us in Christ Jesus. Father, because we need it. We need it every second of every day. Even when we think we're doing our best, God, we need it. And we need you. We need to be led by your spirit. Would you lead, guide, and direct us in every step as we head to barbecues and to watch fireworks, God? I pray that you would put people in our path that need to receive new life. They need to receive forgiveness and eternal life that can only become that can only come through faith in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would open our mouths. God, that you would, if we don't have an opportunity to share the gospel, that that we have an opportunity to show them a kindness and a forgiveness that they'll never forget, that will point them to you. Father, thank you uh, for all that came. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.